0: As you return to your seats, uh, open your Bibles to uh, the book of Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 12. If you are using one of the pew Bibles, as I have right here, it's page number 156. We live in a world that is obsessed with our identity. If you listen to popular culture, they're going to try to tell you what is most important about you. You know, your political affiliations, your gender, or what you think your gender should be, uh, who you share a bed with, your occupation, how much money you make, your parenting style, the God that you worship, or whether or not you think that there's a God at all, you get the point. But when we say, God first, what do we mean by this? If I'm putting God first, what does that mean for me as a father? What does it look like for me to put God first in my marriage? Take any one of the hundreds of roles that you see throughout here, and thank you, Lauren, for your contribution right here, uh, but take any one of these roles, and we need to be asking ourselves, what is this going to look like when I am placing God first? Romans 12, verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. It's an old preacher joke, but I think it's appropriate here. The problem with being a living sacrifice is that you can get up and get off the altar. And so, what we're going to be studying over these next few weeks is how do we stay on the altar? How do we live our lives in a way that will sacrificially worship our God? Originally, I wanted to call this series, uh, instead of identity, that was uh, our second title, I wanted to call it The Other Six Days. Mainly because I think it sounds like an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. But, uh, (laughs) I'm preaching to a group of people here who got all dressed up and you came here on a Sunday morning, and I think I could safely say that y'all dig God on some level, okay? And the... But the thing is, is that I remember before I was a minister, that Sunday mornings, were, I would have all these great times when I would uh, listen to a great sermon, there would be wonderful music, there would, uh, and I would say, yes, this is what I needed. I am fired up, this is the first day of the rest of my life, I'm going to start living for God, my life is turning around right now, and then the alarm goes off on Monday morning and nothing. All the energy is gone. I might be able to tell you one of the preacher's points from the day before. It's important that we study practical ways for us to live our lives and to live these other six days of the week in all these different things and these roles that we are playing and find a way to live these as a living sacrifice of worship towards God because God's word demands it from us. This theme of God first has had me thinking about the words of Jesus in Luke 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yet, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And so, if Jesus was running for public office, we would be saying, Dude, chill, all right? This is not how you get a following. Imagine, we have a whole bunch of people who are throwing their hats in the ring to be governor of our state. And imagine one of them saying, here's my campaign platform. If you want me to be the governor of your state, you have to love and dedicate yourself to me so much that the way that you feel about me, then the way you actually feel about your wife and your children, it will look like hate because of how much you love me. How quickly would that person fall out of the running? All right? And, okay, this is... This is not going to give us a license, all right, parents and let's face it, kids. This is not going to give you a license to just tell people, hey, uh, you know, I hate you because I love Jesus, all right? No, in fact, I think that if you are following Jesus, it will make you a great mom. If you follow Jesus, it will make you a great parent. I know for a fact that I am a better dad because I'm a Christian than I would be without him. But here's the point. It's only when I hold my role as a father in its proper place that I can have my life in a proper order. And all these roles on the wall, let me just say, how many people wrote down father or some sort of parent? Okay, more than half the room, I feel. And so I have to ask this. If we don't have our identity properly ordered, if your role as a parent, is the mo- if that is the most important thing about you, then where does that leave you when your child turns out terrible? You pour yourself into a child. You give them all of the protection, the love, the instruction, food, shelter. You bring them to church every week. You shuttle them around to their music lessons, karate lessons, sporting events. You put up with their terrible friends. You laugh at their stupid jokes. And you give up everything that you thought of what your previous dreams of a life was going to be like. You give all of that up so that you could give all of your energy 24-7 into being a parent for the better part of two decades. And after all of that you end up being the parent of a bad kid. What do you do? Where can you go? When we surrender our identity to God, then we give up control over what we used to think was important. And all those things that we used to think that were in our control so that we can rest in giving control to our king who is good. We can rest in the peace that he brings. So over these next few weeks, we're going to be seeing what the Bible has to say for us, for all these different things that we do and these roles that we play throughout our lives. And the first area that we are led to in the book of Deuteronomy is worship. And we may be tempted to think that when we hear worship, that, that okay, well, putting God first in worship, that's a given. But I could tell you as someone who has led musical worship in a church for the better part of a decade, that... No, it it does not take much for us to take something as simple as worship and make it about us instead of making it about God. And as I've been talking about this, you've probably guessed, we're talking about worship in a way that goes well beyond a Sunday morning. So, but for right now, let's talk about our worship services for just a second. All right. Our worship service in its purest form serves the purposes of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now, of all the complaints that I have received in my years of musical worship ministry, I have never received one that sounded like, you know, that worship service did not do enough to serve the purposes of the gospel. That's not a complaint I get. No, the complaints I get are about a lack of comfort, a lack of familiarity, a lack of respect for tradition, or that the worship music was just uninspiring. And the thing is, is that we have to be willing to look into our lives, look into the mirror of our lives, and apply these same standards of critique to ourselves. Do we hold our comfort, our familiarity, our desire to hold on to tradition? Do we hold all this higher than our desire to see God worshiped? And yes, I am talking about much more than just the hour that, or so that we have on a Sunday morning. Our worship service is meant to do one thing. To encourage and to instruct one another to live out and to display the gospel. That God's kingdom has come near and it is available right now. So we go to our text in Deuteronomy chapter 12. These are the statutes and the rules that you are, that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. I want to pause just a moment here because when we hear rules and statutes, some of us automatically turn off. Uh, Now, Moses just wrapped up 11 chapters worth of teaching before he, he gets to this point, and he's saying, hey, well, do you remember these 40 years of wandering in the desert? Was that fun for you? Okay, do you, do you want to enter this promised land and, and have it go well for you? The land that is flowing with, you know, pizza and cookie bars, right? Okay, so, uh, and so what is the primary command of Moses' teaching that we have already wrapped up? It's the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, verse 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So church, what is our motivation? It's love. We are not a group of self-righteous rule keepers. We are a group of broken people who know that we have been loved by God and we desire to return that love back to him as best as we can figure out. And so we need to keep this in mind first because otherwise we're going to twist this into something about how many rules do I have to keep before God and I are good? And it's not about that. Our motivation is for us to love him. Verse 2, you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods. On the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree, you shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. So we read here this instruction that God gives Israel to take every idol, every item or totem or whatever they had that the Canaanites used to serve their gods and just completely destroy them. Moses is here expanding upon the second commandment, saying that you shall not commit idolatry. You are not going to worship uh, graven images. That God is the, alone is going to be the one object of your worship. So when we talk about the worship of God, our first question has always got to be, how does God want to be worshiped? And God did not want Israel to try to learn the answer to this question by observing the ways that the Canaanites used to worship their gods. No, he commands them to go to their places of worship, and you are just completely going to wipe it out. This, you aren't going to study it. This is not your cultural anthropology class. You aren't trying to figure this out. Just completely destroy them, because I don't want you getting any ideas. I will show you where and how I want to be worshiped. In verse 5, You shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. Now, okay, I just want to take a look at this list here. This seems like a lot. Uh, burnt offerings, sacrifices, tithes, contributions, Free will offerings, and by the way, the firstborn of your flock. And so I've had this question and this wondering in my study, not recently, but a a while ago, why? If God is perfect, if God is self-sufficient, then why does he ask so much? What kind of needy, desperate for attention God desires that he be worshipped all the time? And it's something that I've heard atheists uh, make this complaint. The world's so terrible, and yet God expects us just to worship him all the time. In contemplating this, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, he's answering this question about why does God need to be worshiped? And he says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy, because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is, it's a point of consummation. And here's what this made me think of. I have a beautiful wife. I am very happily married. And on Sunday mornings in particular, when I leave in the morning, Carrie is still in her pajamas drinking coffee. And the next time I get to see her is uh, right before our Sunday school hour after she's shown up in her Sunday best. And so I... I get done rehearsing here, and I walk across the church, and I go, and I see her standing there, and, and I'm just like, wow, that girl's cute, all right? And you would think that me, as a mature husband who has been married to her for 13 years, would say, hey, honey, you look really nice today. But no, uh, 15-year-old Paul is the one who's there. 15-year-old Paul has no idea how to talk to pretty girls. So... So I'm just sitting here in the room just saying, oh, hey, she's over there. She's cute. All right. I like her a lot. And instead of expressing this to her, I'm just, uh, I'm just very awkward. And so, ladies, I have to have you get a testimony there. I'm having many romantic thoughts about my wife. And so how much credit, how many husband points do I get for thinking that my wife looks pretty? Zero. Zero. <laughs> Nothing. I get no credit for thinking that. I beat myself up all the time about how little I express my love for my wife. It's, it's getting better, but you know it's a long process. But I, I love Carrie. I am lucky to have her with me as my partner in this life. And thinking that is not enough. It's only when I express that to her. And I can only share these things because she's not in the room right now. She's holding babies in the nursery. Uh, we are bad at being romantic. She'd be the first one to tell you that. But it's only when I express this to her, when I share my thoughts with her, and yeah, we'll make a stupid joke to make it a little bit uncomfortable because that's how we are, but I don't get to fully enjoy or experience the love I have for my wife until I express it to her and she can hear it. And I'm hoping this is making sense because it's not about worshiping my wife. When we're talking about this, I can have all the good thoughts and warm, fuzzy feelings that I want about God. But if I'm just thinking it and keeping it to myself, that I am never going to be able to fully experience and fully delight in the relationship that God wants to have with me. Is this making sense? We don't worship God because he needs us to adore him. We adore him because of who he is, because of what he has done, and because we want to fully experience the love that we have by expressing it to him. And even our worship of God is for our own good. It is what we were created for. So when we talk about our identity in God in worship, I want to challenge to think I want all of us, we need to be thinking about it this way. What steps do I need to take so that every second that I have on this earth, every fiber of my being is fixated on glorifying and worshiping God in that moment, no matter what I may be doing at that time. Yes, it may lead us to some things that we might think are stupid. You know, how am I glorifying and delighting in God and how I'm driving in my car on the way to work? How am I going to bring God glory when I'm running around in the morning trying to get my kids ready to go out the door and get on the bus to school? But that is something that we need to be focused on. Every moment taken captive and made obedient to our God. Because this is what heaven is going to look like. Our king is going to be on his throne. And he is going to be delighting in the praises of his people. And his people are going to be delighting to express their love and adoration for their king. And I can't even begin to tell you exactly what it will look like. But I can tell you that's what we're going to be doing. And we get and we get to start experiencing this now. And prepare for our hearts for this as we are here on earth. So let's take a moment right now and look at what this delight looks like is going to look like in worship. Verse 7. There we go. There we are. Okay. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. So let's look at it again, because I did not hear it. There you shall eat. Where's my amens? Come on. All right. There you shall eat. (laughs) Yes, thank you. All right. Now, we've mentioned it before, is that they, Israel would bring all these, uh, these offerings before them and they'd bring them before their God because and our God doesn't eat. Other nations would bring food to their gods and leave them in the temples because in their minds, God's ate. But our God never says that he eats or that he needs any food from us. He doesn't need a thing from us. So what, is, what does he instruct them to do with these food offerings that they are bringing? He's saying, bring your sacrifices and your burnt offerings and you are going to celebrate with a feast While they were in the wilderness, the Israelites, they weren't able to, they didn't have one common place where they could all gather together and do this. So the great feast didn't happen while they were wandering in the wilderness. But now that they are about to enter the promised land, God is saying, I'm going to give you a place and I'm going to tell you, you are going to gather here and you're going to have a feast together. Feast, that is Old Testament parlance for party, all right? You are going to celebrate. Throughout the Torah, we read God giving instructions for the feasts of Israel. This was part of their worship, devoting their food to God, and God, in turn, having his people eat this great meal together in his presence, dwelling among them. You shall eat, you shall rejoice. Every man, woman, and child, take joy in everything God has blessed you with. In all that you undertake, rejoice. In 1 Corinthians 10, we, uh, Paul writes, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Do all to the glory of God. If something as common as eating can be done in a way that worships God and that will bring him glory, how much more should my role as a father be used to bring glory to God? God has gifted you in a unique way and he has placed you exactly where he wants you to be so that you could fulfill one purpose, bring glory to him. And I don't care if you drive a truck, if you work at McDonald's, if you're a medical doctor, if you are raising kids at home, wherever you are and whatever you are doing, God has you exactly where you are so that you could bring him glory with the way that you are living. You worship God with the way that you work. And yes, to complete the trifecta, you can even worship God with the way that you play. Live, work, and play. All in proper balance can all be done for the glory of God. Colossians 3, verse 23, a pretty famous passage of Scripture. I hope most Scripture's famous, but Paul writes, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now, testimony this morning, how many people have or have had a difficult boss? Okay. Yeah, I'm raising my hand. My boss isn't here. It's fine. No, I'm just kidding. He's not a difficult boss. when you have an overbearing boss is this passage of scripture easy to work to live out absolutely not but when our lives are lived in submission to God it rewires us and prepares us for an eternity in a unique and special way because if we can learn learn to serve well those people who have done nothing to take the time to earn our respect if we can learn to serve them well how much better will we be able to serve our king who is perfect in everything But it's not even all about that because when we live our lives in submission to God, we live in complete and absolute trust in him. We trust that the authorities that he has placed over our lives are there for a reason. We are to serve them well because even when we can't see it and when it makes no sense to us, we are going to serve him in everything that we do and trust that he is going to use those authorities for his purposes even when it makes absolutely no sense to us. As we move towards a conclusion today, I want to share some words of warning that Moses has in Deuteronomy 12, starting in verse 29. There we go. Okay. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you do not be ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you. And that you do not inquire of their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? That I may also do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Now, this is one of those passages of Scripture that is very easy for us to write off. We can just, I mean, when's the last time we ever heard of a religious sect in modern-day culture making human sacrifices? All right, I mean, we don't hear people throwing their young daughters into the volcano to appease the wrath of the gods anymore, you know, and we didn't drive by a whole bunch of, you know, totems and uh, graven idols on our way into church today, so we don't have to worry about this. Our species has evolved. Church, we cannot let the patterns of this world shape our thoughts about God. And that is exactly what we're being warned against here. God must be worshipped in the way that he wants to be worshipped. And he wants us. To, he wants to be worshipped by us devoting our entire lives to the purpose of his glory. When making a personal application of this text, and I'm talking right now about my role as worship leader in this church, as if that's a title one person could hold. I mean, that's another sermon, but... Uh, I've shared from this stage before, I've teased you all, uh, called you all the frozen chosen. Uh, It drives me a little crazy how I can feel like I can look and I could see more excitement in a Celine Dion concert or a Taylor Swift concert or take whatever artist that drives you crazy. But I could see more life and excitement at one of those concerts than I can from the people who are gathered to worship the almighty and living God. And it drives me nuts. I have nothing against Taylor Swift or Celine Dion. Don't, don't let me offend you. But uh, do I really want to lead you all in the sort of excitement that you get from a rock concert? You could buy tickets. To, you could buy tickets to a rock concert months in advance. This can be very exciting for you. Circle the date on your calendar, and you and have more excitement as the day draws near. And even enjoy even after you go to the concert, man, that was awesome. You're talking with your friends. You're enjoying the afterglow. You're reviewing the set list. Everything is so great. But a month after the concert is over, what what has changed? Is anything about your life different? Doesn't God deserve better than that? In a recent uh, book I was reading, there was this damning indictment of the state of modern worship in church. Saying that basically our pattern is this. we play an upbeat song to get the, the blood flowing, to get people clapping, get them excited to be in church. And then we eventually slow the tempo down so that we can be a little bit more reflective as, you, as we move towards a time of communion. And then we get to the real thing, which is uh, the preaching. And then after the preaching, we play an upbeat uh, song so that we can send everyone out on a high note. And my first thought when I read that was, ugh. And then I said, that's exactly what I do. <laughs> I realized that my desire... To see you all excited, it wasn't because I wanted some holy zeal for excellence and worship for God. I wanted to be the part of a rock concert. I wanted to be the headliner or a stage. I, I, it was not born out of anything that was for God's purposes and not mine. And so I immediately repented for thinking so little of God. What's even worse, I had turned something that is holy The communal worship of God by his people, and I had made that into an idol. That is how easy it is for us to turn something that is good and make it an idol. And we have just read what God thinks about idols and what he is going to do to all of them. So I share this with you as a personal testimony that if our identity is not properly ordered, everything else is an idol. I'm able to distort something so good and make it into an idol. And that is how easy it is. We all have these things that we, in our lives, you could look at some of these around here. We have these things that we think that we need besides God. Our money, our houses, our cars, our children. My goodness, how we like to idolize our children. Our spouses, our jobs, our hobbies, everything that we could see on these walls now. None of these are evil in and of themselves. But I need to ask you, are you able to take every role that you have written down and make that work for you in a way that is going to glorify and worship God. Because if you are unable to do that, then I tell you with all love and understanding, then you need to stop playing that role. And let's be honest, we didn't write every, every role that we played down. Laura was sharing with me. I have too many identities, which uh, uh, she's a therapist. She can help herself. Anyways. Um, <laughs> but let's be honest here. There are roles that we play that we are not going to write down and put on the walls of a church because that's for my non-church time. Those are for my non-church friends. And so I have a simple question for you. Is God the king of your heart or isn't he? God is not interested in being confined to the walls of this church. His worship cannot be confined to this time and this place his worship is to be part of who we are. If God is telling, that you, telling you that you need to stop doing something, then I'm telling you right now, it is for your own good because he is telling you that this is killing you. This is stopping you from living the life that you truly were created to live. And so I ordered the service today differently for a very specific reason. Our worship is not going to be an idol for us today. Our worship is not our opening stuff. Worship is why we exist. Everything we are doing this morning is an act of worship towards our God. Remember, the worship service has gospel purposes. Glorifying God is the priority. Personal preference, what makes me feel good and what makes me feel comforted or respected, that is not something that we need to be considering as long as the gospel is given utmost importance. God gave us this wonderful gift of music, and music has this way of infecting our brains and shaping our thought patterns. When I uh, show up, um, I hope this isn't embarrassing, but Barbara, I'm going to uh, share something about you. I would show up here when I first started here on Sunday mornings, and uh, Barb and Jean would come in. I always knew it was them because I always started hearing a hymn being sung, or hummed, And and she comes in and she visits the church during the week. And again, I always know it's Barbara because there's a hymn. And I, I thought it was weird at first. And then I started loving it. Because that's a woman who has the praise of God on her mind. And it's just, it's flowing out of her. I love that. A couple weeks ago, uh, on, our, on their way into the night of worship we had at West K, uh, Carrie and Andrew, they heard the song Reckless Love on the radio, and they showed up, Dad, you need to do this song. Well, great, we're doing it in about 10 minutes. That's cool. All right? And then later on, after the night of worship, Andrew was singing the song to himself. And that just, just melted my heart. Music is just one of the ways in which we worship God on a Sunday morning, but if all we're doing is playing catchy tunes that are going to, maybe remind us of them later, then we're still missing it. The stupidest tunes can get stuck in your head. Uh, because nowadays, since everything has to bring you, you know, love and good vibes, when my dryer is done, it doesn't just go, Err, it plays a song, okay? And I, I'm working in the garage, or I'm doing something a little bit mindless, I'm always whistling and humming to myself, and I found myself, without even thinking it, uh, humming the song that my dryer plays while I was uh, just working. That's how dumb it, that these things can be. So I don't want you to be humming the tune of It Is Well if you're not going to think about what you're singing. It's not about the tune. It's about the words. What are these words going to do to bring us back to this moment for the other six days? What are these words going to do to bring us back to this time when we gathered with fellow Christians and remembered, yes, I need to be taking this moment and making it obedient to Christ. I need to be worshiping him. That is why we worship. That is part of the reason why we sing. We sing songs because scripture commands us to. And I think God knows how he wired us. That we are to use this as a way to learn more about him and to always constantly remind, keep the praise of God always on our lips. So I want to encourage you. We're going to head into a time of singing now. And let's use this time as a way to express our love and worship towards our God. This is not about old music versus new, new music. This isn't about any of that. This is about God. That is why we are here. And so after we have this time, everything we're doing, again, this is all about worshiping God. We're going to sing a couple songs. We are going to have a time of community together where we remember the acts of Jesus on the cross. And then we're going to be, have a time where we collect our offering because something that has not made a big enough deal in our churches is what offering is supposed to be. Offering is not you paying your bill of ransom to God. That's not what this is about. This is about surrendering control of your life to God. And if you're a guest here, I'm not asking you to get out your checkbook. It's none of that. But we are going to collect our offering and we're going to celebrate what God is doing here. Because it's not about any one of us. It is all about him. So let's keep that in mind as we stand up right now and sing praises to our king.